0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space, this is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And since we've got uh, kind of a long program again today, I'll just get right to it and uh, save my personal remarks for after we uh, first listen to another part of a workshop that Terrence McKenna led in February of 1992. And uh, we'll pick up with Terrence telling the story of uh, what took place in his mind immediately after his first DMT experience. And
1: I said, you know, I've got to go back to square one. All these people I dismissed all these people who say the universe is made of levels who say there are disincarnate intelligences who say that the you know death is not simply the yawning grave i had dismissed all those people as crybabies and sob sisters and i said no you know the point of view that i previously dismissed is apparently what's actually happening so in a single experience i was converted from naive rationalism, realism, reductionism to my present position, whatever it is. Really all I've done is worked out the implications of the personal implications for me of the DMT flash, and I've also tried to create linguistic models of it. Um, so the worth of it is that it shows you beyond a shadow of a doubt That the world is made of magic. That's what the world is made of. Not natural law. Not interlocking cause and effect. Not any of these things that are normally... The world is magic. Not a little bit. 100% every atom from one end of this cosmos to the other is magic, magic, magic. Certain concerns just die in the first 30 seconds of the DMT flash and can never be brought back to my mind. I've seen people who I considered what I call fragile. Some people are not good candidates for the psychedelic experience because they've been damaged by life in some way. And so for them, boundaries shouldn't be dissolved because their whole challenge is to keep boundaries in place uh, and I remember one case particularly a woman who I had was a friend of mine I really liked her but I thought of her as fragile and to not somebody you wanted to lean on in a crisis she smoked DMT thrashed moaned rolled her eyes back gave all the exterior symptoms of really having grabbed on after about 10 minutes she sat up and said it didn't work (laughs) nothing happened i said nothing happened well you want to try again no way never ever again so it did work but the personality was somehow able to seal itself off from the implications because the implications quite literally would have destroyed that person it was a truth they weren't ready for and I suppose it's wonderful that DMT saves you from that I felt I felt I felt in danger of dying from astonishment when I did it. And I do every time I do it. I mean, I, I, I don't know how they keep the lid on this stuff. I mean, I think that this is the secret that wants to be told. I think that we are, in a sense, here involved in some kind of... I mean, I don't want to lay this trip on too heavy... But in a sense, we're involved in a little cosmic drama here. Fate has chosen you to hear about this. If you've never heard of it before, you're hearing about it now. Now, you don't have to do anything with the fact that you're hearing about it, but you have been told at this point... If you now go forward and live in your you know, mundane stock portfolio, BMW existence, it's because you're making a choice. Because you heard from Terence McKenna that there was an entirely other possibility. You don't have to avail yourself of it. But I think it's a, a moment of great import in a person's life when they are told about DMT because it's... It's what everyone thinks is impossible. That's actually what it is.
0: Yes, I have a question. Would that be possible that with DMT, the mind gives away to the inner self that you are seeing these things with your soul or that you become your soul in a guilty way?
1: Well, what I don't understand is why are the things you see so alien? I mean, you would think that with, we have 15,000 years of poetry, painting, song, story. How come there's no tradition of mm-hmm. this? How come our folkways and our art and our drama are so utterly empty of an awareness of this? I mean, this is, to my mind, actually probably the central importance fact of being or at least it's as important as sexuality to go from birth to the grave without ever encountering DMT is to my mind like going from birth to the grave without ever having a sexual experience it means you skated through life you never got it you never figured out what it was for and that unnerves me because I think what life is for is to figure it out you know life is some kind of an opportunity yeah okay
2: Terrence how and from whom do you buy this
1: stuff? (laughs) (laughs) well they haven't made it easy for you they've made it illegal Um, so that's really the question is where do you get it? I can't solve all your problems for you. Uh, but but that's what you need to know. Is there any place that it's legal in the country? Oh, it's legal in most countries. Most See there isn't enough of it around. It's never been a social problem. They just made it illegal in the 1960s because they made everything illegal. I mean, if somebody is proposing to the DEA that a drug be made illegal, how do you decide if a drug should be made illegal if you're of their mindset? Well, the first thing you do is you, um, you look at emergency room admissions, Over the past 10 years, you say, well, how many people have been dragged into emergency rooms either raving or dying on this drug? The the numbers for DMT, how many people in the past 15 years have been brought to emergency rooms? Uh, Zero. Zero. Nobody. Because it doesn't last long enough with our men, with our healthcare delivery system, it could last an hour, and there would still be no. Uh, you'd have to take it in the emergency room, <laughs> and then they'd have to run to keep the emergency alive long enough for anybody to look at it.
3: Parents, have you noticed? Is there any difference between whether you get one or three topes? Dosage.
1: Yes, there's something you have to learn how much you need because some people are very sensitive and some people are incredibly insensitive. Uh, so, and that's why I took the time to describe this feeling of the air being pumped out of the room and then the appearance of this flower like mandala if the flower like mandala persists for longer than 30 seconds or a minute you're not going to break through. You need to sit up and ask for another toke. Uh, And I tell people, when I turn people on to it, whenever I'm in some country where it's legal, I uh, always say to them, at the 30-second mark, I will say, do you want another hit? If you don't, don't say anything. You don't have to do anything. If you do, you must sit up. Of your own, on your own power. If you can't sit up, it's my judgment that you're too loaded to take another hit. So it's, it's tricky to lead people into that.
3: What's the history of this? How long uh, has it been around?
1: Well, that's an interesting question because as a plant, hallucinogen, DMT has been around a long time. But in the Amazon, as a snuff, and it's what gives the visions to ayahuasca. You see, ayahuasca is a combinatory drug. It's two plants mixed together. One inhibits a, an enzyme system in the body called the monoamine oxidase system, whose job is to deactivate monoamines, of which all these drugs we're talking about are. And the other co- chemical in ayahuasca is DMT. So what these shaman in the Amazon are really doing is they are inhibiting the monoamine oxidase system, and that allows the DMT to be orally active. You see, if you were to just have some DMT and decide that rather than smoke it, you're going to take it orally, nothing will happen. It will be destroyed in your gut. By this system called the MAO inhib the monoamine oxidase system, but if you inhibit that system, you can make it become orally active. Uh, But when it's orally active, it's much more diminished and stretched out. But a very stiff dose of ayahuasca. You can after about at the hour and 25 minute mark on a very strong dose of ayahuasca. If you're familiar with the territory, you can look around and say, my God, it's building toward being like a DMT flash. It is like a DMT flash, except that it goes on for a a lot longer, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, I question... Whether in traditional societies anybody ever really reaches these reality-obliterating levels, Uh, among the Yanomamo, they make a snuff out of the seeds of Anadonanthera peregrina, Uh, and I've done that snuff and it's very painful to do because you have to blow a couple of tablespoons of uh, ground toasted material up into your nostrils you can't self-administer it you have to have a friend blow the blower and then you scream fall back, salivate and by the time you've gotten your act together he's got it loaded again for the other nostril and then, if you do that, after about 10 minutes of sitting and shaking your head, saying, geez, what have I done? A, a psychedelic state will creep over you uh, uh, a, uh, a trip, but not the DMT flash. So, I think it's an interesting question. DMT was uh, characterized and purified only in 1956 by a Czech chemist named Sara. And uh, it may be then that only since 1956 have people been able to access that tremendous flash. Uh, I have at times given DMT to... um, well, in one case, a very well-known Tibetan spiritual teacher who shall remain nameless. But what he said after doing it was he said, uh, they're the lesser lights. <laughs> what he meant was when you enter the bardo, you see, on the first stage of the bardo, you see these so-called lesser lights if you go beyond the lesser lights, you cut the thread that binds you to the physical body and you then cannot return. You must head deeper into the death realm. So he said, they're the lesser lights. I've seen it many times. Unusual that it should be caused by a plant, but there you have it. Uh, yeah, Kathleen.
3: When we were foragers and the and DMT was in plants, did that affect our nervous system
1: or did it have to have the MAO inhibitors? It has to have the MAO inhibitors to be orally active. Although it's a question, why did we invent smoking in the first place? I
3: was thinking of it not so much as as a hallucinogen but as a, a, a formative thing for the nervous system.
1: Well, definitely these things must have acted. All of, you see, all these indoles, which we've been talking about, are drugs. But uh, there are other indoles, which are growth hormones, uh, sexual uh, hormones, all kinds of stuff. And a lot of our physical expression has probably been altered by exposure to plants. I mean, our hairlessness. Uh, many, there are many aspects about us that are what is called neoteny. Do you all know what neoteny is? Uh, It's retention of of infantile characteristics into adulthood. And if you look at uh, the ratio, for instance, of our skull size to our body size and compare it to other monkeys, we're like juvenile monkeys, even in the adult form. We appear juvenile in our proportions. Our hairlessness... Other monkeys are born hairless, but then they quickly grow body hair. We don't. We, remain, we retain the juvenile characteristics. And this is probably, uh, when you encounter it in other animal life, it's always assumed to be a, a response to mutational pressure. So, we, And there, there may be progressive juvenilization going on in the human species. Uh, if sex gets any more dangerous I think probably it will be eliminated as a method of reproduction and will go to vats and uh, uh, you know this will further exacerbate this tendency toward neoteny the way in which we uh, permit and encourage a larval relationship to television and (laughs) The fact that television, the content of television is so idiotic. You know, they say it's now down to being geared for the average 11-year-old. My 11-year-old is bored to death with TV. So this is a neotenization that is culturally sanctioned. We're accepting a kind of society where millions and millions of people have very simple thoughts and spend all their time in a larval state imbibing manufactured data streams that come to them over the boob tube. This is not a pretty picture, actually. I mean, these people are not entirely human beings. Uh, I mean, they would, I'm sure, rise in holy wrath if they heard that, but they never will hear it because it's not going to be broadcast on any channel they watch.
3: Yeah. I'm confused about the Tibetan spiritual leaders... Uh, thing that he said but was it dmt dmt and, and or, is it your understanding he you saw the dmt elves or
1: i don't know if he saw the elves he was of such a stature that i couldn't really hammer at him he pronounced it the lesser lights and and i bowed my way out of the
4: room. <laughs> Oh,
1: because these these yogas that these Tibetans are into are all designed to familiarize themselves with the after-death uh, state. In one way, in one possibility, you know, like the notion of Tibetan religion is that what life is for is to get ready for dying, and that this getting ready for dying has to do with this metaphor of a vehicle that you're supposed to build an after-death vehicle, so that when you die and put the key in the ignition, it's not going to chug, 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 and then turn over and not go, because then you're in real trouble. You want your after-death vehicle to be well-serviced and fully fueled when you need it because then you're going to drive off into the unknown.
3: Does that mean that those guys experience the same thing as, as others experience on DMT?
1: Well, what is persistently claimed for shamanism, and certainly Tibetan religion has roots deep in Central Asian shamanism, what's claimed for shamanism is that the shaman... ...can travel to the realms of the dead. That the shaman is a superhuman... ...in a superhuman condition. Not entirely uh, alive... ...not dead... ...but has physically transformed himself... ...or herself... ...into something... ...a creature of the interzone... And, and this, this is the power of shaman, that they can come and go from the interzone. And uh, how seriously we should take this? Very seriously, because we have no technology for accessing these places. There's a lot of cultural hubris involved in all this. We can't imagine that any other culture is in possession of any information that we don't have a pre-prepared file on and I think that when you spend time with these shamans and really get into it you finally realize western civilization is completely infantile it's completely hung up on the surface it is not grounded in the dynamics of nature we are childish you know I have heard it said I I knew a, a had an Indian friend, and he told me once he was going to return to live in India. I said, My God, you're going back to India. It's such a nightmare. Why? And he said, I know it's a nightmare. I hate everything about it except one thing. And I said, What's that? And he said, People in the West are so simple, I can't stand it. And this is true. I mean, if if you don't think so, go, deal, go buy hash in the markets of Bombay and you will discover you are such a child. You don't know what's going on. You're so easily manipulated and led, so eager to be friendly. You take everyone at face value. Someone smiles at you. You think they're your friend. The line I love, which you hear occasionally in India and in other third world countries, is... I am your friend. I am not like all the others. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, special price. Welcome.
0: Are you able to uh, uh, ask,
3: formulate questions in in this situation? I mean, it sounds like you deduced that they may be soul's.
1: Uh, yeah, I no, that. I deduced that. Uh, no, you can't really ask questions because the, you can on psilocybin it, with other psychedelics, but you cannot uh, do that with uh, a DMT because they know what they want to talk about. They only want to talk about this one thing, about this language transformation uh, uh, possibility. What they want you to do they want you to do. That
0: happens for others as well?
1: Uh, Yeah, a number of people have reported it. I, I, at the risk of repeating myself, there is a metaphor in the natural world which sheds some light on this, which is... um, You all know that octopi change color. This is well understood. Most people think it's because they can camouflage themselves, and so when they move across the reef, they go orange, red, blue, green, depending on what's behind them. This is not what is happening with octopi color changes. What is happening is that they communicate with each other by changing not only their colors, which they can have a very large repertoire of color changes, traveling dots, blushes, so forth. There are technical terms for all of these, but also because an octopus is a mollusk, It's a very soft-bodied creature. They can fold and unfold various parts of their bodies very rapidly so they can modulate what you see so that, for instance, if there's a red spot in the equivalent of their armpit, by raising and lowering an arm very rapidly, they can flash you this red spot. Well, at first pass, you just think, well, isn't that interesting? Octopi uh, communicate by changing their, their shape and color. But if you go back and analyze it a little more closely, something very profound is happening here. The, uh, it, you get to it by analyzing the nature of how we communicate... We communicate with small mouth noises. And we are physiologically set up to produce small mouth noises. Uh, the average human being can talk for a couple of hours without showing much sign of fatigue. Those of us who train hard can do it endlessly. Uh, uh, And what's happening with small mouth noise communication is uh, an acoustical wave is moving through space. It's been formed by the sender based on consulting of an internal dictionary. And then I see the, the word for... Could you please help me? The words are, could you please help me? So they say, could you please help me? And then the other, the way, the acoustical wave goes across space, enters the ear of the intended uh, object of the communication. They look in their dictionary and they say, oh, he's asking for assistance. Could you please help me? means, can I be, can I have assistance? But now, what if the utterance is extremely complex? then the object of this intended communication looks in their dictionary and they say, well, he either means that he would like to have an affair with me, or he means he would like the name of my tailor, or he means that his clothes cost more. And, you know, there's ambiguity in all of this. And one thing Mm -hmm. we avoid doing very much in ordinary speech is saying to somebody, what do you exactly mean? Because we fake it. I mean, a a lot of communication is, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, and you say, well, I don't know exactly, he said, I think, I don't know, something, he wants something. Uh, What's happening with the cephalopods, the squids and the octopi, is there is no ambiguity The surface of the octopus's body is the surface of the octopus's mind. The mind changes and controls the appearance of the body. There's no culturally sanctioned dictionary. One octopus can tell what another means by looking. And the meaning is biologically and genetically scripted, not culturally scripted. An octopus from thousands of miles away from where another octopus originated, if they are the same species, can understand instantly what is intended. So in a way, the octopus has involved a very complex linguistic system where the surface of the creature is its mind. Yeah. Yeah.
4: You know the book by John Steinbeck, *Sweet Thursday*. Mm-mm. You should read that book. The main
2: character, Doc, has a laboratory where he studies octopus, and he studies them in order to see if he can induce apoplexy.
1: Apoplexy and cephalopodia sounds good Uh, you know know, there are kind to show you how important this kind of communication is to octopi the octopi evolved in the intertidal or in the circoliteral zone meaning in shallow waters off of continents in reef environments but you know there's a lot of life in reef environments it's as intense as a rainforest so there's a lot of evolutionary pressure on a, on a reef environment. And one strategy, if you're under a lot of evolutionary pressure, is to just go somewhere else, go where there isn't pressure. And where there isn't pressure, uh, com- competition for food and stuff like that in the oceans is in the benthic, what's called the benthic depths the abysses of the, of the oceans. And many, for many species of octopi have evolved into the abyssal environments and they uh, have retained their ability to communicate with each other in these zones of utter darkness by evolving phosphorescent organs that stud their bodies. So there are even octopi which have eyelid-like membranes over little lights (laughs) That they can turn on and off at will, and then they can flutter these eyelid-like membranes. And if you can ever see film of this taken from through the windows of bathyscaphs and other deep ocean exploration vessels, it's pure idea the animal has disappeared. The animal has become its language. They never see anything of each other but their language. The body and the language have become the same thing. And I think that uh, this is uh, what we are being pointed toward. This is what those elves in hyperspace are trying to push us toward. Remember how I said they sing objects into existence and the objects themselves then become kind of autonomous entities capable of singing other objects into existence. It's that in order to get the ambiguity out of language, we are going to have to go to a wider bandwidth and the wider bandwidth is visual It's incredible that this world of, uh, you know, nuclear powers and integrated global economies and so forth and so on is held together by small mouth noises, is held together by a method of communication, 90% of which is lost in noise and ambiguity. We barely can communicate with each other. And yet we have seized the tiller of planetary existence and proposed to set the agenda for every life form on this planet from virus to grizzly bear Uh, uh, part of our I think our problem with managing our situation is that we don't have a way of getting ambiguity out of our languages
3: why is that a
1: problem? because you can misuse ambiguity George Bush can tell can tell us that he is the environmental president that he wants a kinder, gentler America, that he feels the pain. I mean, you know, that you would call this horseshit if it weren't so pathetic. It's, it's, uh, we, uh, you know, somebody once said language was invented to lie. Small mouth noise language was certainly invented to lie because it doesn't existentially map back onto the surface of appearances. Uh, this whole, uh, you know, um, fantasy or, or hope of telepathy uh, lies behind a lot of psychedelic imagery. Well, telepathy. When most people think about telepathy, they think of m- that they will be able to hear what you think. If they could hear what you think, then there wouldn't be ambiguity. But in fact there would be as much ambiguity as there is in spoken language because people speak as much crap to themselves as they do to other people. The only way you can transcend the ambiguity of language is if you turn it into something beheld. And I think that culture is the program within the monkey species that is an attempt... To make language visible. And that's why virtual reality, which we haven't talked about too much, but which somebody mentioned as we went around last night, virtual reality holds great promise. Because uh, at the operational level, what virtual reality is, is it's a way of showing somebody the inside of your mind. Showing somebody. And notice that when we talk about language, our notions of clarity, there it is, our notions of clear speaking are all visual metaphors. If you think you really understand somebody, then you say, I see what you mean. Or you say you're completely transparent to me. If somebody is eloquent, you say, he spoke clearly. She painted a picture. What this means is that we have an unconscious bias in favor of the visual sense. It's what our eyes tell us that we believe. Yeah. Um,
3: (laughs) If your DMT experiences have revealed to you that the surface, the naive realism of our world, which you referred to on the first talk, is not the whole picture, right? Right. And it does not, in fact, communicate to us the, the important meaningfulness of life, right? It does not uh, take from us the pain of existence and the fear of death and all these problems that all human beings have had as far as we know. Then why is visual communication the answer to these things? Why is it impossible to be deceptive, communicating in a visual way? And once you have the technical problems, it's just like you know. I, I personally am an artist, and many different media, and as all, and I'm sure a lot of people here are creative. And the great challenge of creativity is trying to make physical what it is that's inside, and, and the technology to do it. Even with you know, virtual the problem with virtual reality is it's boring. And it's clumsy, and it's not a very interesting place to be.
1: Well, it's very young. It's
3: very young. But how does, how does the... Well, I
1: think the key to the answer to your objection lies in the in the word naive. Naive realism won't do. What we need is sophisticated realism. The world is very complicated. I don't think naive anything is going to take us very far. Uh, What we need is a very sophisticated analysis of our situation. Every artist... Well, no, that's not true, because there's music. And some people say all art aspires to the condition of music. But but to my mind, the visual arts all aspire to this elimination of ambiguity from communication. This is why, I suppose, if we were to try to create a uh, theory of aesthetic here, I would argue that sculpture is a superior form, uh, Uh, mode of communication to painting let's say because sculpture has an infinite number of points of view built into it while uh, the pictorial representation assumes a a single or a very limited number of points of view Uh, what we have to do is both contact our inner reality and then clarify our tools for communicating it. We, the culture cannot evolve faster than the language evolves. Because remember we said last night, the, the culture is made out of language. And, you know, what we are doing here at Esalen or what you're doing when you try to persuade people to recycle or what you're doing when you're trying to persuade people to re-examine their attitudes towards the feminine is we're trying to get them to change their language. Uh, The bad people have always understood this very clearly. It's called propaganda. You know, Lenin said, give me the child at age seven and I will return you the man because uh, this seems to be how it works. What we need to do is clean up our language. There are terrible problems in English I mean, uh, the subject-object relationship. At least English is gender-neutral. Languages which aren't are just, you know, have, carry heavy freight in that department that would be very difficult to overcome. Our ultimate description, notice that our most powerful descriptions of reality are mathematical, mathematics is an artificial language specifically created with the intent of eliminating ambiguity now the problem is we can't all follow these mathematical languages but we probably could if we gave it more effort yeah
2: Terence Uh, Terence, what uh, vocalization and and telegraphy uh, are so miserable as tools for for this all-important uh, job of communicating for you know, real communication I've often fantasized in my mind that at some dim dark past uh, this species had a power of direct communication that somehow was lost so uh, sort of a, a babble uh, concept uh, it was it was somehow lost Uh I, I, probably because of the, of the overloading of the networks that, that would be one hypothesis in, in other words, two, when you have too many circuits going then people have to, to, to dream up other ways of, of talking with each other but it's so inefficient to talk I mean, our speech and our language is so horrible that I can't believe that, that this species started out with that
1: no, I think that we—the that language was evolved in an ambiance of nearly continuous psilocybin intoxication and that what we call poetry is in fact clear speech, ursprach, a language so powerful that its linguistic intent is directly beheld if you hear it. And the Babel myth is a good one. We have fallen into a realm of corrupted language. And somehow recovering this primal language is the task of saving the human world. And it's, you know, it sounds airy fairy. It's saying that poetry can save the planet. But very powerful bardic poetry of a sort that we haven't seen for several millennia.
2: Well, some uh, cats, dogs, etc., evidence the capability of direct communication well, over over. there's nonverbal distances.
3: communication which is much more direct. In fact, schizophrenic children believe more nonverbal communication than verbal communication. A mother who says, I love you, you know, is, you know, definitely schizophrenic, and double-blind message, and the, that child will believe this versus whatever comes out of the mouth.
1: Well, so, but isn't It's the... not
3: complete. It's not. It's
4: not detailed. But we believe more what's in front of our eyes, just like you were saying. But and we do have it. It exists. The, the,
1: right.
4: the problem
1: is that we have a drive to communicate all kinds of things which can't be done that way. they're more complex complex. and so then we've created provisional languages but I agree I think that originally uh, language was uh, to communicate emotion this glossolalia that I did this morning or whenever I did it let me do it a little bit and then talk about it to make the point Now when you analyze that and make recordings and really analyze it there is syntax there is syntax but there is no meaning but I just did it and I just did it at the speed of an ordinary conversation what was happening in my brain when I did it if there was no meaning. In other words, what I did is I said to myself, take the meaning maker out of the loop, but let the language flow. Well, then, from where comes the modulation, the tonality, the differences? Well, the only place it could possibly have come from is my internal state. What you just heard from me was the most honest thing I've said today. situation reflected in a verbal exercise that was not designed to convince you or impress you or drag you into my vision of things. It was simply that's who I was at that moment. Uh, Ralph Metzner and I once had a notion of giving a workshop or a weekend Uh, in which uh, half of all utterance would have to be in glossolalia. So that, you know, you said, well, I'm a committed Marxist-Leninist myself. However, you say, oh, well, so he's a Marxist, but he's also this other thing. That's who he is emotionally. And then you could balance it. And you see, we suppress these internal states. We uh, create meaning as a kind of community venture, but there's not much of us in it when we do that behavior. Uh, The paucity of words for emotions in our language is a clue to the fact that we have put too much emphasis on nuts and bolts stuff and not enough emphasis on conveying the essence of who we are. And so now we empower a special class of people called artists. And their job is to convey this essence. But what we need to do is make life into art and take upon ourselves an awareness of the responsibilities that language puts upon us. We're not going to save the world or honor the feminine or do anything worthwhile until we change the way we talk about these things. That's the first step. And, you know, in in any political agenda, the first thing they want to do is control definitions. I mean... If you define, this is what the Nazis did brilliantly. If you define someone who is Jewish as not a human being, which is what the Nazis did, they called them uh, Untermensch the under man subhuman and you know. well so you've you've changed the reality of what this person is in your mind now you can build ovens deport them put them in slave labor camps because you've changed their essential nature by changing how you speak about them and most of what we most of the changes we've allowed in language have been of this negative destructive disempowering sort the curse of simplification the easy answer the glib reply this is what our politicians you know they say well you just cut the capital gains tax and and it'll be fine Everybody knows this is malarkey. It won't be fine. But language metaphors are being misused to delude and to keep some people on top and some people on the bottom. I think the reason we're spending so much time on this is because I think that what psychedelics do is they catalyze new forms of language. People are still, the greatest leap forward in language evolution that happened in my lifetime was under the influence of LSD in the 1960s. And people now make fun of all of that. The concept of the vibes, the concept of grokking, the concept of an ego trip, the concept of a put-down. These are all... People didn't know what an ego trip was until they took LSD. There was no word in the language for that. Uh, yeah. uh, so, and and notice how much energy the establishment has put into denigrating uh, the kinds of languages that evolved in in the 1960s. Yeah, it's penetrated everywhere. Well, it's I penetrated mean, it's everywhere. Well, that addresses a different issue, which is the the meme wars. You all know, I suppose, that a meme is the smallest unit of an idea in the same way that genes are the smallest units of heredity. Ideas are made out of memes. Uh, Any coherent notion is a meme. Women should be respected. That's a meme. It's competing against the meme that women are worthless. That's another meme. These two memes compete in this society. One leads to a certain... Believing one of those memes leads to a certain set of consequences. Believing the other meme leads to a different set of consequences. Memes evolve in exactly the same way that uh, organisms evolve large ideological structures can be made up of thousands of memes. The meme of democracy is a very complicated meme. It makes certain assumptions about literacy and voting and responsibility and so forth and so on. I believe that what we're involved in here is a meme war and that the best memes will win if the playing field is level. That's why we're talking about the psychedelic experience. If we don't talk about it, it isn't a meme. It's a private obsession. It's uh, something underground. But we bring it into competition in the environment of natural selection for for, uh, uh, applicable meaning when we utter it. And that's why the beginning of any social change is discussion. Yeah,
3: mm-hmm. I, I sort of wanted to share an experience, only because it's remarkably like what you were talking about, um, and that is, uh, um, once on a, a psilocybin uh, I met a an entity that was right off a pressure plane You know, and I. It, it was almost annoying. It was like a, um, a, uh, um, an eel made out of some beautiful chiffon with a dog's head, you know, kind of you know, looking at me. So it was right there on the picture plane. Um,
1: oh, well, that's the dog-headed chiffon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> it was the fact that it was yeah, well, so close to that's
4: that's my, my
3: face. Okay. Uh huh. Um, And the other instance was uh, uh, walking down a spiral staircase with what looked like plants shoving things at me, you know, and I I thought they were rude. That was my take on it, and it resonated with what you said.
1: These were psilocybin Uh, visions. Oh, ayahuasca. Yeah. One of the things we didn't talk about uh, this afternoon is the sort of the ambiance of that DMT state. What is the attitude of these tykes toward you? And it's 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 a curious attitude. They are not entirely friendly or they are not entirely to be trusted. And if you're a graduate of Irish fairy tale literature, you know that fairies are very, very tricky that's essentially their major characteristic and their sense of humor and their sense of comedy doesn't always dovetail very smoothly with our own. I've sort of described the, the Tykes as piratical. They, um, when I try to remember where I've had that feeling that I have in the DMT space, where in my life I ran across that feeling before, It was in Indian markets as a child, buying hashish uh, for purposes of smuggling uh, and being conducted into these situations where everyone was your friend, but they had led you through such a labyrinth of streets and relieved you of all your gold and had given you a Coca-Cola and put you in a room and told you to wait and said, you know, we're your friends. Not to worry. (laughs) All is going to be all right. And it always was. And this is sort of the feeling you have with these things. And it came to me because at the end of this afternoon, we were talking about memes. And I had said how these things offer you these objects. I think what they are is uh, meme traders in another dimension and what they want is ideas and they sort of use the technique that we would use in trading with magpies you know how a magpie will take a piece of colored glass and or or let's shift the metaphor pack rats are you all familiar with pack rats I grew up in the high mountains of Colorado where pack rats exist. And pack rats are traders. They will always leave something for what they take. And so the trick is to get them to leave something more valuable than what they take. And there are numerous anecdotal stories in Colorado about leaving a 7-up cap out and getting back a diamond wedding ring in trade (laughs) because the the pack rats like one way a, a way when I was a kid we used to hunt treasure in old ghost towns and the way we would do it is we would look for huge abandoned or not abandoned pack rat nests and there in the pack rat nest you would discover watches Coins, jewelry, rings, and broken glass, bobby pins, bottle caps, you know, all the detritus. So the DMT creatures are meme traders of some sort. And what they're offering, these things they're offering, are the equivalent of glass beads they're saying this is the sort of thing a quasi-intelligent primate ought to be able to respond to. They say, how how would you like this? They say, oh wow! Let me have that. And they say, well, just a moment. Uh, uh, you know, uh, can't you give us a piece of your folklore or a, a chunk of religious ontology or a little bit of uh, political philosophy, and then we'll give you the bauble. And so there is a trading, and um, what I intend to talk about tonight in utter indulgence of my own ego, having spent the day denouncing the ego, is uh, an idea. This is what they trade in, is ideas. And they handed me um, a very interesting idea, in trade for something which I didn't value all that much, but which I think they, they really got a bang out of, which was, uh, I traded them the I Ching in its uh, Wilhelm Bain's translation, and they gave me a complete hyperdimensional map of time And they took the I Ching and twisted it around and wired it back upon itself and then handed it back to me as a gesture so that I could relate to this primitive artifact of my own culture uh, in a new way. And uh, I don't know how much of this we can convey in the absence of a computer, but I'm willing to give it a whirl. And in the... uh, in the spirit of the lady who just spoke I will uh, I will make it try to make it anecdotal because Saturday night people have had enough of this stuff anyway um, so here's my my story uh, in 1971 uh, well Actually, I realized after talking last night that I never introduced myself or did anything formal at all. I just... The Engineer was at my elbow, and I began pummeling him, and then that just led out into the <laughs> gray wastes of heaving rhetoric, and never got back to anything approaching uh, an introduction and i 've made allusions to my rationalism and so forth, but my my story is uh, sort of like the unsinkable Molly Brown. I grew up in a coal mining town in Colorado and I was always uh, a weird kid while everybody else was playing little league baseball I was off in the dry arroyos near my home digging up fossils and uh, uh, you know, being maladaptive in many different ways and uh, the thing that I was always Tracing or looking for was a kind of iridescence that adheres to certain m- kinds of matter, certain situations, and even certain kinds of people. So it started out with a fascination with uh, minerals, a rock hound, and then that led into fossils. And that led to butterflies, which was a lifelong obsession until so much pummeling with Buddhist ethics made me give it up a few years ago. But resentfully, I must say... Uh, you know, Buddhism is fine, but no one knows the pleasure of the capture of a, a bird an ornithopterid in the jungles of Saram. I mean, you want to talk about hard wiring in the human organism? We've been insectivores for nine million years, and there's a, a thrill there in the capture of a large butterfly that... that well, sorry to drift off into.
4: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Forgive me. <laughs> Iridescence. Iridescence. yes. And so then the butterflies sort of carried me along for a while, and then when puberty hit, uh, pineal symbolism overwhelmed everything else, and I got into rocketry. <laughs> And, uh, you know, the compounding of fuels and the launching of these things from the local baseball diamond and airport at incredible peril to myself and the people around me. And then I I discovered at a certain point, uh, I had always been a, a kind of a science chauvinist. And then at a certain point I discovered art, literature, poetry, music, dance, theater the whole of the humanities came flooding in but the guiding aesthetic was always an aesthetic of the weird i guess i should mention that i'm a double scorpio mm-hmm. But the the aesthetic of the weird drove me and uh, nothing was strange enough. I loved the science fiction films of the 1950s and I was into the music of John Cage early, early on. And of course all of these things funneled me toward uh, psychedelics. I mean, psychedelics are like the quintessential essence of this aesthetic of the weird. Once you get to psychedelics, it's like you've hit the main vein of weird, you know? No more do you have to closet yourself in the attic with your copy of Hieronymus Bosch. Uh, You can now, you know, move out into the real thing. So that propelled me to a lot of traveling. And traveling, I think, is second or third in importance in the human experience. I mean, I would say uh, sexuality, psychedelic drugs, and travel. This is, uh, you know, my prescription for, uh, I don't know, destroying your digestive tract or something. (laughs) And I, uh, I went first to, to Africa and then to the Seychelles Islands and then to India and lived in Japan for a while and then eventually went back to Asia. And uh, I had encountered LSD in, uh, in uh, Berkeley where I went as an undergraduate in the fall of 1965. That was the other thing about me. I was incredibly lucky in that a kid from a cow town in Colorado, I was able to find my way to ground zero of the cultural scene. I was able to put myself at the corner of Shattuck and Bancroft (laughs) in in the fall of 1965. So the whole thing was just being staged for my benefit, I think. Thought well, so then I was became very interested in psychedelics, and I actually smoked DMT early in 1967. A tremendously fortuitous uh, moment in the history of my uh, the development of my thinking. Apparently, uh, SRI, the army was trying to develop a drug called BZ which was an aerosol delivered tryptamine that would a hallucinogenic tryptamine that would be delivered by an artillery shell into a, a Vietnamese village and while everybody was stoned on DMT our boys would come in and kick butt or do whatever they do and uh, a 55 gallon drum of solid DMT had been boosted off the back of a truck by some uh, Stanford graduate students and um, I'm telling you it, it was incredible i mean it was uh, it's never been that good i don't know what this stuff was exactly a 55 gallon drum of yeah really there might be actually the search for the treasure of the sierra madre so i had this benchmark you know, aha, uh-huh, DMT. And I took a fair bit of LSD in those undergraduate years at Berkeley, but I have to confess, it never, it was never easy for me. It always seemed like psychoanalytic Drano, kind of. And, and after each acid trip, I would say, my
4: God, I'm
1: not going to do that again. Well, of course, then two weeks later, I would be back to it. Uh, but and but I had, was... My style has always been to be a reader and to get to inform myself. So I read The Doors of Perception and Havelock Ellis and Weir Mitchell, all these people I mentioned this afternoon. And I, what fascinated me was how they insisted on visions particularly havelock ellis's descriptions of his masculine experiences where he says uh you know architectural ruins dripping with globular jewels strange statuary leering from darkened doorways and i said hey i want it
4: <laughs>
1: you know where do we how do i get that And LSD didn't really do it for me, although my most satisfying LSD trips, and this is just maybe a practical suggestion, were in the presence of good hashish. Hashish seems to be able to pull the pure translucency of LSD toward a much crazier, more psychedelic, more mushroomic-like place, at least for me. So then I went to India, and I knocked around for a while, and I quickly became incredibly disillusioned with all of that. I mean, I don't know, folks. Uh, Everybody has different experiences, and you can only judge your own path. But I just thought it was the most outrageous con that has ever come down the pike, that, you know, maybe millennia ago there was something going on, but it has been so enfolded by priestcraft and dogma and class consciousness and, and, uh, Everybody's out to con everybody else and there you are. What do you know? I mean, these people have been at this for a thousand years and you fly in from Malibu, sugar and money heavy into their midst. Well, they know just exactly how to turn you every way but loose. And eventually all you ask is that they turn you loose, you know? Um, Now, I know there are people for whom this message is unwelcome, who are within this room this evening, but I'm not knocking Indian spirituality. I think that there is a great wisdom about how to live that these world religions have accumulated. The problem was I was 23 years old and I wasn't interested in wisdom on how to live. I was interested in how do you get as loaded as possible and then be able to talk about it. So I... uh, went through all these experiences and was abandoned by uh, the love of my life and all kinds of things happened and eventually I decided that the answer lay in the Amazon and so in uh, late 1970 I had been living in Vancouver, British Columbia I couldn't enter the States because I had a price on my head Not much of one, (laughs) but an uncomfortable situation to be in. So then I went to the Amazon for the first time with my brother and uh, uh, a couple of friends who came with me from the States. And then we quickly made common cause with a woman down there, and she came with us. So it was uh, two women and three guys, and we were considering that we no one that I was the oldest and I was 25 years old as I look back on it we were an incredibly serious and well informed group of, of 22 through 25 year olds and our intent we had all graduated from the school of DMT we were all post-revolutionary Berkeley Communard types and uh We had collectively decided that the only hope lay in somehow getting into the DMT flash for longer than a minute to a minute and a half, and that the strategy for doing this must be then to go to the Amazon And explore these psychoactive uh, drugs. And the one that we were interested in is one that even today has yet to become an item on the Malibu consciousness uh, circuit, a drug called ukuhe. Ukuhe. it's used only by the Witoto, Bora, and Muinani tribes of the lower Putumayo of Camisaria Amazonas in Colombia. Very limited uh, geographic area in a completely remote part of the Amazon. And what was interesting to us was the anthropological reports were that they rolled it up. It was the resin of a tree, and that they rolled it up into little pills and that they took the little pills and then they would lie in their hammocks and they would speak to the little men. And so we said, this has got to be it. And, and Dick Schultes, Richard Evan Schultes of Harvard, had already published on the chemistry of Ukuhe, and it was definitely contained DMT. So we said, okay, these people have found the way into what we then called the beta level just for shorthand so the way into the beta level was to be achieved by Ukuhe so we put together this expedition and we descended the Putumayo River which is the border between Colombia and Ecuador and Peru to a place called San Jose del Encanto on the Rio Igaraparaná which flows into the Putumayo there and at that point, it's a 120-kilometer overland five-day walk to a remote mission called La Chorrera. And the most places in the Amazon are historyless, but La Chorrera had a very dark history behind it, which I didn't really know at the time, (coughs) and probably very few people in this room have ever heard of or know anything about what's called the Putumayo rubber horror. What this was, was a rehearsal for some of the, for Hiroshima, Auschwitz, you name it, It went on from 1912 to 15 in the Amazon when, in a frantic effort to get natural rubber to fight the First World War, British banks bankrolled uh, an episode of genocidal brutality that is remarkable both for the depth of the horror and for how thoroughly it's been completely forgotten. And what they did, these British banks, is they financed this Peruvian mafia called the House of Arana to basically enslave Indians over a vast area of the Amazon and force them to extract the natural rubber under pain of death. And there are endless stories of the atrocities. Uh, uh, People had the soles of their feet removed by machete if they didn't meet the rubber quotas. Mm -hmm. And just nightmare after nightmare, if you want to read about it, there's uh, the British Royal High Commission under Roger Casement, and that was another story. You see, Roger Casement was the last man hung for homosexuality by the British crown. He had been the British Council General in Rio de Janeiro and had exposed this rubber atrocity and all the collusion of British banks and stuff like that. But a few years later, he expressed Irish sympathies, <coughs> sympathies with the Easter Rising of 1919, And immediately the Foreign Office came forward with love letters between him and Parnell, the Irish revolutionary, and and he was hung for being a homosexual. Uh, But anyway, La Charrera had this very dark history of these rubber atrocities. Well, we rolled in there and... uh, Immediately, there began the unfolding over just about a three-week period. I mean, a very short length of time, from the 27th of February, 1971, until the 22nd of March. So, a period of just under uh, four weeks. It was like the doorway was standing open. All rational expectation had to be put behind. It was as though our whole lives had built to this moment. And what was what we thought was a quest for an obscure orally active tryptamine drug, it turned out it was more as though something, something which had been with us from the cradle, actually lured us. To this extremely remote place where there was no way out, no radio, no communication of any sort, lured us to this place to to then begin this series of unfolding ideas. And these ideas that were released in that three-week period are basically all I've ever worked with. I haven't had an original thought since March of 1971, essentially. <laughs> it's just been endless recension and reworking of what happened there. Well, what happened was taking a lot of mushrooms and being in this incredibly natural, beautiful low-toxin environment. I mean, there was barely even radio waves in this place. It was so remote. It was like our minds began to dissolve back into the order of nature. And we began to discover what the order of nature actually is. And it took the form of an idea, which was a, which my brother... Uh, Dennis, who's the pharmacologist of the gang although he wasn't at the time he has gone on to become the person he most was before he studied the subject now he is a molecular biologist, research pharmacologist and drug designer then he was a 21 year old kid with a rave but he proposed that there was a way to take these psychedelic drugs and to use Sound to cause a small number of these drug molecules to permanently bond into the DNA. The term for this is intercalate. And it's known now, although it wasn't known then, that many drugs do this. Many drugs do intercalate. You you all know how DNA is a double helix with... uh, Uh, nucleotide rungs and the ladder? Well, certain molecules, especially certain drug molecules, can slide right in between the rungs of that ladder. And without imparting any physical deformation to the molecule, they can change its properties. In fact, this may be how psychedelic drugs work. Now, we're at the edge of known... Physiology and neurophysiology. When we talk like this, one of the great puzzles of uh, biology, or human biology, is the persistence of memory. In other words, uh, it's said that every molecule in your body is uh, cycled within a five-year period. That you know, t- six years ago, there wasn't a single atom in your body that is now in your body. The form persists, but the matter is traded in and out, except in one case, which is the neurons do not trade out. The neurons that you're born with are the neurons that you die with. So then the problem here is memory. Uh, You you can be 70 years old and have an absolutely crystal clear memory of your first day of attending school in that red brick schoolhouse 65 years ago. Okay. Conservatively, seven times every molecule in your body has been swapped out So where has this memory been all this time that you can pull it up with perfect clarity? This is a great mystery of metabolism, unsolved to this day. There are several possibilities. One possibility is that memories are not located in the body at all. Although, uh, suggesting this is no magic bullet, it raises a number of questions, probably as difficult to solve as the original question for which this was proposed as a solution. Okay, what are the other possibilities? The memories must be stored, then, in the non-degrading part of the body... The non-degrading part of the body is the neural DNA. <clears throat> the cell nuclei of neurons don't change within your lifetime. Well, so then you, t- you take this idea to an or- uh, orthodox... Uh, Uh, molecular biologist or neurophysiologist or geneticist and they say well this is just bunk I mean in the first place you don't understand the concept information the kind of information which is stored in DNA is sequences of nucleotides which code for protein to confuse that with an image of your great grandmother's face is to just you know have such a, a mush of categories that it's hopeless to even talk to you. Okay, so that destroyed the supposition, but it didn't solve the problem of memory, yeah.
4: What about the possibility that what happens when you remember that schoolhouse 65 years ago, that you aren't remembering it, you are remembering the last time you remembered it, that you only actually remembered that schoolhouse once, and then every time after that, all you remember is the last time you remembered it.
1: But so what if you haven't remembered it for 50 years? I mean, this happens.
4: But, but I'm suggesting that you're not remembering it each time. You're only you're only remembering a snapshot of it. You remember the last time you remembered it.
1: But what if that was more than that length like of time ago? Yeah, that doesn't solve this problem of happen. how is the memory trace able to persist? Well. So uh, Dennis's notion was, he said that some form of superconductivity must be involved. Now, this was 1971. Superconductivity was not known to occur more than three-tenths of a degree above zero absolute. He said, no, there must be room temperature superconductivity going on in the DNA. This must be how the DNA preserves information. Now, if you know anything about superconductivity, it is the perfect uh, 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 physical phenomenon to use for preserving information because no information degrades In a superconducting circuit, say you have a ring of supercooled gold and you impart an electric current to this ring. That current, barring interruption of the superconducting state, will circle that gold ring with zero resistance for eternity. Now, the only thing which can cause the superconducting phenomenon to cease is if a high-energy source overwhelms the superconductivity, comes in from the outside and disrupts it. Now, think about the, co- the problem that nature faces with the genetic machinery. The key to life is error-free copying, Wherever there's error, then there becomes mutation or problem or incompatibility. So all of the strategies of genetic preservation of information seek to maximize the absence of error. So, the perfect mechanism for doing this would be a superconducting mechanism. Now, you see, the major cause of mutation in the natural environment is cosmic radiation, ambient cosmic rays, high-energy particles that smash into the genome, physically collide with the DNA, and break the bonds and disrupt the uh, The message, so that it can 't be copied, superconductivity would be the natural uh, medium to retard this process so dennis 's notion was that the DNA was a kind of superconducting uh, storage device, and that in fact what we call the Jungian unconscious or the racial memory or the genetic memory could be tapped into, and that what a, what a drug trip is, is a neurotransmitter that competes with serotonin that then broadcasts off this genetic memory bank a slightly different slice of the catalog serotonin broadcasts are the equivalent of traffic and weather reports where it tells you how to get around in the world and where not to go and how to avoid problems if you swap out the serotonin channel for the psilocybin channel, suddenly it's the equivalent of Pacifica radio. It's running philosophy discussions and classical music from another planet, you see, because the, the efficiency and the emphasis of these neurotransmitters is different. Well, so uh, we went through a series of startling Revelations and uh, experiences using this idea, because he was dead serious about doing this, and decided that I would be the likely candidate for what he called hypercarbolation,
4: <laughs> <laughs> and that
1: you know we would saturate me with drug molecules, and then he would—he knew how to do the thing to make an ordinary trip turn into the forever trip by locking these molecules into their bond sites. Oh, and that's the piece of the puzzle that I didn't explain that you might not realize. Uh, When a molecule is superconducting, I'm sorry, when a molecule is at zero degrees absolute, it becomes superconducting. So if you can cool a molecule to that level, it will immediately bond... Permanently to whatever is physically nearby. So Dennis said, what you do is you take all these... Uh, you, you saturate your body with these drug molecules and then using a complex theory of harmonic cancelling, which I won't regale you with this evening, he thought there was a way to f- generate sound that would affect a very small number of these drug molecules and cause them actually to superconductively bond into the DNA. And then the trip would be permanent the trip would be scripted into the genome or at least for the life of the organism and he suggested that if you make the DNA superconducting in this way that eventually death is no problem it's just sort of like a shedding and you go into the rivers and the water and the air and you become very tiny you become the size of your DNA uh, nucleotide in nucleus. Uh, Well, I thought that this was a very highly unlikely notion. So unlikely that since he was so gung-ho to try it, the best thing to do would be to just let it rip. And uh, if there was something there, that would be interesting. But that I was willing to bet dollars to donuts against it. Well, he set up the experiment. He did the experiment. And he had made very extravagant and inflated predictions about what would happen he thought that you would literally give birth to your mind as a physical substance i don't know whether it would flow out of your nose or where it would come from but he he thought that that mo- that there was a kind of superconducting hyper uh, uh, translinguistic matter he called it he thought there was a way to dissolve the boundaries between matter and spirit and create an obsidian fluid that would be obedient to your own imagination that would in fact be you you would just preserve your body as a convenient reference point but you would actually become this stuff
2: what were you guys on? Yeah, really? <laughs> I'm
1: telling you. <laughs> so I thought, huh. sure, so try it. So... What's to lose? Yeah, what's to lose? <laughs> we, we didn't come all this way for nothing. You say you know what you're doing. Nobody else has a clue, so go for it.
4: <laughs>
1: well, what happened was uh, not what he predicted, but not nothing. And that was the great puzzlement of this experience because what happened was uh, immediately after this procedure was carried out, uh, I could tell that something had changed in me. And it was very hard. It took me a few hours to figure out what it was. And what it was was it was though uh, a switch had been thrown and I began to understand that's all it was it was you know Whitehead defines understanding as the apperception of pattern as such and suddenly I began seeing things very differently I began to see the relationships between things on one level and among levels and uh, I stopped sleeping. I didn't sleep for eleven days, effortlessly. And every night during this eleven days, I would, in the late evening, I would just become very, very impatient for all these people to go to bed, my my companions, because the chatter of the camp would interrupt my thoughts. And what I just wanted to do was I would just go in the jungle and I would just put my hand on a tree and I would just stand and think and think and think and think and think. And it was this endless cascade. It was not like a psychedelic trip. There was no hallucination. There was simply this unfoldment. And it was like as though I was just filled to overflowing with gnosis. I would sit down on the ground and begin thinking and I would lose myself in my thoughts and when I would come back to my situation, I would look down in front of myself and see that while I had been thinking, my hands had built a fire out of small sticks. It was as though... Everything was cognitive activity. Uh, Dennis went uh, what would be conventionally called a psychotic episode, but it wasn't a typical psychotic episode. It was a kind of uh, turning inside out so that he became... He, he, in a single moment after the hypercarbolation, it was like he ended up at the other end of the universe, turned inside out and headed backwards. And over the next 14 days, he came through a progressive narrowing of his... Um, mm, the, what he was identifying with. So that first it was the whole universe, then it was the galaxy then the solar system, then each of the planets moving in, then all life on Earth, then all mammals, then all human beings, then all Irish, then finally all the McKennas there ever were, and then finally the question was, was he him or me? And then he got that sorted out finally, and then he was fine, shaken but fine. We've now reached the 22nd of March, 1971, and I was just, I couldn't, I couldn't talk to anybody. I was uh, in a in a very, 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 very strange place. I mean, things went on. Well, just as an example, because there wasn't much of this 3D stuff that you could, you could wrap your mind around. But everything was teaching me. Everything had a message for me. And I would go out into the jungle and I would, uh, I would raise my arms above my head and I would call the butterflies into me. Out of the jungle, and they would come first in by dozens and then by hundreds, and I would stand there. And here's how the thought progression would go: I would I would call the butterflies in, and then I would uh, it would move me to tears. And so there I am standing covered with butterflies, tears of joy streaming down my face and streaming down my face and streaming down my face. And finally I begin thinking, so now what? <laughs> and, and, then, and then I think, ah, the people back at the camp who doubt me, those bastards, wait till they see this. So then I would go to the camp and I would smiling, the tiny smile that only Buddhas can manage. And I would invite them into the jungle to see something unannounced. And so they would say, well, I don't know, you're just, uh, all right. We'll go. So then we would go into the jungle, and I would raise my hands above my head, and I would call the butterflies in, and none would come. (laughs) And these people would just say, Oh, God. It's just, it's getting worse and worse and worse. Your brother is nuts. You have delusions of grand... This is pathetic. I mean, this is a mind in wreckage. This is the green hell. This is the thing we feared the most, you know? And so eventually... And any of you who are self-diagnosed as schizophrenic will agree with me on this, I'm sure. The key to surviving schizophrenia in one piece and avoiding massive intervention by the mental health care authorities is shut up. Shut up about it. Do not talk about it. All the you, you, of course you can raise the dead and heal the sick and divine distant events, but just shut up about it, or you're not going to make it through. Well, eventually everybody else sort of renegotiated themselves back to some kind of reality. My brother flew back to the states, and I was uh, in a sense left in the Amazon to to mull. All this.
4: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: Well, Terrence, now uh, you have left a great many of us to mull over all of this, and uh, along with mulling over all of the strange and difficult trips we've had ourselves. I think that, uh, in a way, being psychedelic means having fun thinking about a wide range of questions that ultimately, uh, well, we'll probably never know the answers to. In fact, uh, here's one of those questions that uh, I think about every once in a while, but (laughs) to tell the truth, it always freaks me out a bit when I think about it. If you've ever had a DMT experience and are somewhat familiar with the place that you seem to be in when you smoke it, uh, not to mention the entities that you encounter there, well, if you've uh, been there then, you know that it's an experience unlike uh, any other you've probably had. Now, think about this for a moment. Where is that place? It's right here. It has to be. I mean, your body doesn't go anywhere. And yet, you smoke a little DMT and you're immersed in that world surrounded by it. Maybe we are now. Or not. I really don't know. (laughs) But it kind of freaks me out when I think that perhaps those tricky little elves could be sitting right here on my desk and laughing at me right now. Well, getting on with the program, uh, I also realize that you uh, already knew Terrence's story of his youth and the adventures at La Torreira, but each time he tells it, there are slight variations that I find fascinating, and hopefully you also enjoy listening to uh, some of these repeat stories from a slightly different direction every once in a while. And uh, please keep in mind the fact that this talk was recorded in February of 1992, and there's been a significant amount of work done in the field of psychedelic chemistry and molecular biology since then, so be careful about repeating some of the scientific things that Terence was talking about, because, well, there's a good chance that not everything he believed to be so at the time is still considered true. Uh, Maybe some of our fellow slaughters can add a few thoughts about this in the program notes, which... As you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. As I was uh, listening with you to Terrence speaking in the early part of this talk, it finally struck me what it is about him that has always been so compelling to me. Uh, It was during his octopus rap just now that it struck me. You see, Terrence never spoke from notes, and his talks were led by the questions from the audience. So going into this talk, he had no previous notion that he'd be speaking about the technical terms for the ocean's various depths, along with a bunch of scientific terms about octopi. In a way, uh, I'm now thinking of Terence's mind as uh, what big data has now become with the aid of a web phone, but Terence did it on the natch. Also, that was the part of this talk where Terence was stressing the fact that we need to get away from communicating with uh, just using small mouth noises and evolve a visual language instead. And he went on to say that, and I quote, I think that culture is the program within the monkey species that is an attempt to make language visible. Well, it may be a small step in that direction, but remember the old saying about a picture being worth a thousand words? How many pictures on average do you think are conveyed in, say, an hour of YouTube videos? Did you know that a hundred hours of new video is being uploaded to YouTube every minute? And that last year there were over six billion hours of video watched on YouTube? I'll let that sink in for just a moment. I'd also like to mention just a little something about Terrence's reference to the U.S. Army's work with the drug BZ. If you've been with us here in the salon for a while, you may remember me speaking of my friend Jim Ketchum. I say friend, uh, although we've exchanged a number of emails since then, but the only face-to-face time that we ever spent together was at Burning Man, where Sasha Shogun introduced us, and someday I'll have to tell you the story about those Burning Man conversations, but not today. Anyway, it was Jim Ketchum who was uh, in a major research position during the work that the U.S. Army did with the drug called BZ. In Jim's monumental book, Chemical Warfare, Secrets Almost Forgotten, Jim spends a lot of time writing about the BZ experiments. And uh, this is not a drug to be taken lightly, as the saying goes. Depending on the dose, it could take as long as 48 hours to get back to baseline. And according to Jim, and I quote here, Systematic testing of BZ began in July 1960. By March 1963... We were ready to submit a summary of 22 different BZ studies, each designed to explore a particular aspect of its pharmacology. More than 300 enlisted volunteers had helped to develop the details of BZ's remarkable profile. It took almost three years and an estimated 100,000 hours of professional effort by physicians, nurses, technicians, and volunteers to learn all of the things we wanted to know about BZ. BZ end quote. I'm tempted to go on, but uh, this one story covers dozens of pages in Jim's book. My point is that while groups like the Hefter Research Institute and MAPS are desperately short of funds for research into psychedelic medicines, as far back as 1960, the U.S. government was spending vast sums of money for research in this area. All of that data still has to exist somewhere, and maybe some of our fellow slaughters can dig around and Find out more about where those old records are now lying fallow. Now, as I say this next bit, you should picture me with an elfish grin on my face and pretend that I'm speaking directly to Terence here. So, Terence, you tell us that you think you got the best of the DMT meme traders because you didn't value what it was that you gave them in exchange for them giving you the idea for the time wave. Well, uh, now that all of the time wave furor is over and we see its current value, I have to say that uh, my mother uh, maybe was right. You get what you pay for. Terence. I think that maybe the elves were just kind of fucking with you about the time wave because you tried to cheat them. Now, I know that's not fair since Terence can't respond, but even though I only knew him slightly, I'm quite sure that this thought would at least bring one of his wonderful laughs.